When you shop for clothes after losing weight, do you still try on much larger sizes than you need? Hi, I'm registered dietitian nutritionist, Dr. Susan Mitchell. Let's go beyond bariatric surgery and talk about everything you need to move on. Katie said, in my youth, I lost 45 kilograms or 99 pounds dieting and felt fatter than what I was, so much so that the shop assistant stopped me and said, you need smaller sizes, love. Mary said, I lost 70 kilograms or 154 pounds, but I still felt like I was 140 kilograms or 308 pounds. What's going on here? Joining me via Skype from Boston, Massachusetts is clinical psychologist Dr. Elaine Daniels, recognized leader in the field of body image and eating disorders, as well as in yoga integrated treatment. She completed her pre-doctoral, post-doctoral, and advanced postdoctoral fellowships at the Yale University School of Medicine. Dr. Daniels provides psychotherapy services, as well as being a registered yoga teacher with specialized training in yoga-integrated psychotherapy for people with anxiety, depression, eating disorders, and or trauma. You can find out more about Dr. Daniels on our website, beyondbariatricsurgery.com. Just click on the podcast for her episode and the show notes. Hello, Dr. Daniels. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Susan. It's truly my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, Dr. Daniels, what is phantom fat? So phantom fat speaks to the fact that the body can change faster than the mind can adjust. So this is true even if the weight loss or body change occurs over a long period of time. See if any of these speak to you. With phantom fat, you lose weight, yet you still still see yourself in your former size body. It's so, as if the weight pardon? Yeah, so kind of like Katie to what she was just exactly. what she was just it's, saying, exactly. right? Exactly. Bingo. Exactly. That's very typical, very common. It's as if the weight that Katie lost is still there. And just like Katie, it's not uncommon to still shop in former size clothing, trying on clothes in much larger sizes than you need now. Um, you avoid sitting in the middle seat in a row of seats on an airplane because in your former size body, you wouldn't have fit. Or maybe walking around sucking in your gut or contorting your body in ways you used to in order to fit, like in a booth at a restaurant, but no longer need to. Maybe walking around feeling the same degrees of self-consciousness as you felt in your pre-weight loss body, even when complimented about how thin or, or great you look. So basically, the, the mind stays stuck in the way you used to look. And, and you know, some people are probably going, phantom fat, wow, that's a name. How did this name, phantom fat, come about? I know, it conjures up Casper the ghost. Or something. <laughs> really? <laughs> the phantom. <laughs> phantom of the opera. The name came from the concept of phantom limb phenomenon, which is when people who've had a limb removed, maybe their arm or their leg, feeling sensation in that limb that's no longer there. And, and I've heard of this actually in our military members who have lost limbs exactly. in action and talk about that in their treatment afterwards. So, you know, for those exactly. who for the, that haven't experienced phantom fat, I think it could be a hard concept to grasp or even believe that it really exists. Absolutely. So it, it may be tempting if you've not experienced phantom fat to believe there's no such thing or to think it's really assurance seeking or fishing for compliments, but it is in fact a real phenomenon. So is it the same as 
body dysmorphic disorder? I'm going to get a little technical here in answering that question. There's definitely overlap, but they're not the same. So in body dysmorphic disorder, a person imagines that there's a defect in his or her appearance. So BDD is often about facial features, like the size or shape of the nose or the ears. Among women, there may be a belief of uh, there being excessive facial hair. You know, some, some of the women I've treated with BDD believe they have a mustache. They're very self-conscious about any kind of facial hair. With men, the, the flaw they perceive may have to do with baldness or acne scars. So when people have body dysmorphic disorder, they don't necessarily have concerns regarding their weight, nor have they necessarily had major weight loss. There are people with BDD who also have an eating disorder, and they're likely, because of the, the eating disorder, to misperceive their body size and shape. But that's not phantom fat. The body image problem for those with a co-occurring eating disorder is considered part of the eating disorder. Okay, so then going back to phantom fat, what are risk factors to keep in mind that you never have thought about or tied to a concept like phantom fat? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So the more quickly the weight is lost, the more difficult it is for the brain to catch up, which makes sense, right? So one yeah. risk factor is rapid weight loss. Another risk factor is something that's common, which is a history of weight cycling, which is when you've been a lot of different weights, particularly if the weight changes are due to dieting. A third risk factor is a little bit harder to define. It has to do with something I call embodiment or how much and how accurately you're aware of and in tune with your body. So let me jump in here and ask a question. Sure. So I'm thinking about what you said at the very beginning that uh, one risk factor is rapid weight loss. So if you've undergone bariatric surgery, you have rapid weight loss. And so I can yes. see that there would definitely be a tie of phantom fat with this because of the fact that that's exactly what's happening. Exactly. It almost sets a person up for phantom fat. Fascinating. To have that experience. Yes. And then the person, you know, has the extra struggle of not necessarily being believed that that's how she experiences her transformed body. And now they're going to understand more of why, which is exactly, exactly why we're glad you're here today. So then where do these different activities that you are also trained in come into play? So activities like yoga, Zumba, other movement activities can, can help provide us with more of a sense of being in our body, belonging in our body, being able to tune into sensation and knowing where we are, where our body is in space. The fancy term for that is proprioception. So when we're in a, a body that's larger than society says is acceptable, the very activities that could help with embodiment tend to be avoided. Mm. So you're saying when we do Zumba, <clears throat> we get a better feeling of where our hips are or yes. how much space our body takes up. So it sounds like getting involved in more focused movement can help. Are there other components to treatment for phantom fat? Or I guess, is there a particular treatment for phantom fat? You know, I'm not aware of any particular standard treatment. And that's one of the reasons I'm so thrilled you're doing this podcast and bringing awareness to this very common but 
misunderstood and overlooked problem, phantom fat. So cognitive behavioral therapy can be a useful place to start. And many therapists are trained in CBT. CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy helps us learn how to identify distorted ways of thinking. And the way it does this is by teaching us different kinds of thinking mistakes, also called distortions, that we all tend to make. And the ones that people with phantom fat in particular may be more prone to make. So it's a process in which CBT teaches us how to evaluate the validity of our thoughts and how to generate more accurate ways of thinking. Now, the limitations of CBT are that often a person with phantom fat intellectually knows she's in a smaller body than she feels or thinks she is, but she still feels the weight mm -hmm. that isn't actually there. And so phantom fat goes well beyond thoughts. It goes beyond cognition. So I hear, you, hear you're saying to look at the facts or the evidence such as, I feel like I can't fit through that space, but you know, rationally I see I can. So you're challenging your thoughts, but what about feelings? They're so powerful and they sometimes rule, just like you said, the person still feels so strongly that this is what I am, even though they're not. Bingo. So a, a second component I've found useful with the men and women I've worked with who have phantom fat issues is to help them decode what the phantom fat may represent. Often, it represents disgust and shame, which are, are two very difficult feelings to manage. So Despite the weight loss, the, the person still feels a similar amount of disgust and shame about his or her body as before the weight loss. And carrying around shame, carrying around disgust is burdensome. It feels heavy. So along with a smaller size body, there could also be an increased sense of vulnerability around being seen, around receiving more attention. So teaching people how to recognize and manage their feelings is often associated with a decrease in phantom fat because it, it relieves the burden, the weight that they carry. Which makes, also, yeah, makes a lot of sense to me as I'm listening sure. to you because I think about that increased sense of vulnerability that you're saying because all yeah. of a sudden you've lost a lot of weight, you're receiving a lot of attention that maybe you haven't received before, and there has to be sometimes a lot of emotion with that. A lot of emotion, it, it can be very scary, very frightening. A lot of anxiety is provoked. I also remind people that it takes time to reconfigure the pathways in the brain that are so used to thinking, feeling, and behaving in ways associated with being in a larger body. So eventually those pathways fill in and new ones are strengthened, the more often those new ones are practiced. And, and the fancy term for that is called neuroplasticity. I love the power of our brain, it's incredible. It's incredible, <laughs> it's incredible. And we can use our mind to change the configuration of our brain and we can use our brain to help us you know, with our mind. It's just fascinating. So. If, if I may, just another underpinning of the way I approach treating phantom fat is to really start with encouraging 
body acceptance through body neutrality as a way of sort of going in the direction of eventually body like and, and body love. When someone has been in a body that's larger than society says it's okay, it's really difficult to find joy or peace. And certainly weight loss does not guarantee joy or peace, phantom fat or not. But with phantom fat, it's pretty much guaranteed there'll be no or very little joy or peace. So to shift the perception of our body to one of the body as more of an instrument than an ornament is epic, 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 epic. So focusing on the miracle of our body, all it can do for us, all the sensory experiences it allows us, like our arms for hugging loved ones, our legs for walking through a garden. Without a body, we wouldn't witness the beauty of a sunrise or enjoy the scent of our favorite smell. Oh my gosh, yes, we need to be grateful for our bodies because whatever form they're in, we wouldn't be here without them. So speaking of these wonderful bodies we want to care for, as a yoga teacher too, talk about where yoga fits in this whole concept that we're talking about movement and phantom fat. Yeah, so I, I do um, like to incorporate some basic yoga principles in the treatment who, for, for patients who are open to it. Sometimes people believe that they have to have a svelte body in order to do yoga, and all you need for yoga is a body. If you have a body, you can do yoga. I love that. All you so, need is a body. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I may ask a patient to mentally scan her body, scan her body from the inside. Where does she feel sensation? I may ask her, for example, to make a fist and then to release the tension, to release the fist. What does she feel? What about when she pulls back her shoulders and opens her chest, opens her heart area. What does she feel? And learning to breathe while doing this kind of practice can keep the body in a calmer space and help with a sense of integrating the experience of being in the body. Okay, everyone, take a deep breath because we need to take a short break. But when we come back, Dr. Daniels will share a phantom fat success story. Talk about how long it takes to see change. You know, we always wanna know how long is this gonna be and what can you do to enhance these changes? Don't you go anywhere. If you've had bariatric surgery, you need a specific bariatric multivitamin, not an off the shelf version. There's a big difference. In Australia, choose BN Multi. Find them at beyondbariatricsurgery.com in the shop. Welcome back. Don't forget to subscribe to our Beyond Bariatric Surgery podcast on your favorite podcatcher, such as iTunes or Google Play. If you need help, go to beyondbariatricsurgery.com. We'll show you how to set it up. It's really easy. Also, check out the great online courses we offer you at beyondbariatricsurgery.com. You'll surround yourself with positive ideas and like-minded people with a particular topic focus for six weeks or more. It's a great way to stay motivated and have the opportunity to speak directly with some of our experts via a private Facebook page. There's a course starting soon. It could be just what you need. Where's the info? Beyondbariatricsurgery.com. 
joining me via Skype from Boston is clinical psychologist Dr. Elaine Daniels, who completed her pre-doctoral, post-doctoral, and advanced postdoctoral fellowships at the Yale University School of Medicine. In addition to being a psychotherapist, Dr. Daniels is a registered yoga teacher with specialized training in yoga-integrated psychotherapy for people with anxiety, depression, eating disorders, and or trauma. We're talking about phantom fat. Once you realize that this is an issue, we always want to know, okay, how long? What do I do about it? How am I going to be successful? So how long does it take for successful treatment, Dr. Daniels? That's a very common question, and often it's one of the first questions people ask. So the, the answer is it really varies, depending on lots of different factors, such as a person's mental health history, any co-occurring psychological challenges, how much weight was lost, how rapidly the weight loss occurred. Other factors include a person's readiness to be curious about any disgust or shame that may exist, and really how deep the person wants to go in the treatment. Regardless though, I, I, however deeply the person wants to go in the treatment, I, I frame the treatment as a collaboration, really guided by curiosity, judgment-free, curiosity about their own body's remarkable ways to keep them feeling safe and protected. And there are different levels of curiosity and everyone's goals are different. You know, so many of our listeners are going to be at different places. They might even just be about to have surgery or right post-surgery yeah. or, or maybe dealing with things for a few months and or a few years. So would you give an example and kind of talk us through a client with phantom fat that you've treated and had success? Sure. Thank you. So Carol, that's not her real name, but we'll call her Carol, is about 30 and she was raised by very weight conscious parents who were avid exercisers. She never liked to exercise. Instead, uh, she preferred to spend her free time reading and hanging out with her friends. Her body was larger than her parents wanted her body to be. And they would subtly, or I would argue not so subtly, convey their, their disapproval with comments like, why don't you listen to a book on tape and go for a run instead of just sitting and reading a book? Or you better not keep eating so many sweets unless you're going to work off those calories. So her, her parents were, were well-intentioned, meant no malice. But Carol often felt as if she was not good enough. So the, the overt and subtle pressure to exercise caused Carol to rebel. She began to sneak eat as a teenager and gained a lot of weight very quickly. So what happens when she goes to college after rebelling in high school? Because rebellion is a difficult attribute, isn't it? Rebels can really create change, but being told what to do can make you want to do the opposite. Yeah, exactly. So she went to college, she lost weight, and of course her parents were thrilled. But this caused her to regain the weight, and then some, each summer when she was home during the college years. So at age 30, she was just very confused about what her body actually looked like because her weight had fluctuated so dramatically and often throughout the previous 15 years. And when she looked at her reflection in a mirror, she wasn't even sure whose reflection it was. She had such ongoing negative body image that part of what she carried with her was her ongoing body disgust, her ongoing dissatisfaction with her body, regardless of her weight. 
So when she presented for treatment, she had been a stable weight for about a year in what would be considered a, a normal weight range. But she perceived herself to be in an enormous body. And I remember when she came into my office, she walked in sideways because she didn't think she would fit through the doorway as she walked in head on. Wow. Uh, she, yeah, she used her stretch marks and, and loose flesh as evidence of how disgusting her body was. And she refused to let anyone see her in a bathing suit or, or naked. And when she was physically intimate, uh, she insisted the lights be off and that she stay under the covers. And one of the men she had been with reinforced all of this perception of disgust when he broke up with her because her body was, quote unquote, too flabby. Oh, gee. And that, that statement had to not be helpful for her emotional health or for dealing with her situation at all. Yeah, that's quite the understatement. Yes. So treatment um, included CBT, uh, cognitive behavior therapy, decoding the meaning of the weight that she was carrying and finding activities using her body that brought her joy, that brought her her pleasure. So she recognized over time that the shame and disgust that she had developed in childhood had only increased and was part of the reason she was never too thin to feel fat. And she learned that the very activities she purposely avoided could, in fact, be part of what could help her feel more connected to her body, more peaceful in her body. So she began to do some seated yoga in session, some purposeful breathing practices. And then she even developed a really lovely mindfulness walking practice. And <laughs> she cleared, she steered clear of guys who were superficial jerks. Okay. Too. <laughs> so after, after she dumped the jerks, go back, go back just a second to a mindfulness walking practice. Um, yeah. Clarify that just a little bit. Sure. So instead of seeing walking as an exercise, she thought of it as an opportunity to be with nature. And she would approach her walks with nature in mind. Approaching her walks in this way meant that she was accessing all of her senses. So she was very aware of the, the smell in the air, the feel of the air on her skin, the beautiful sights of the, the trees and other aspects of, of the setting she was in. So the focus was not on burning calories as it had been when she was encouraged to exercise by her parents. So, you know, this is very similar to the mindfulness concept that we use in eating when we are working to teach people to slow down how quickly they eat a meal, to look at it, um, taste it, to take a small bite, move it around in their mouth, really determine the flavors and enjoy all of that. So it's a similar type of thing when you're starting to practice mindfulness with food. Exactly. And I like to think of it as being sensory guided. It's really about slowing down mm -hmm. and allowing the senses to experience what's happening in the moment. It's beautiful. And you know, it's, it's hard because 
our culture says, just like when I asked you a minute ago, how long did this take? How long did this take? I think that we live in a culture that says, hurry up, let's eat, let's go, let's eat, let's go back to work, let's do this, let's do that, that we almost have to clear out this, how long does it take, how fast do you eat, and, and put that away and start to say, you know, it's not about that. It's, it's about relearning or learning mindfulness. Exactly. You know, we tend to be oriented toward what's next. Let's go do the next thing yes. as opposed to being present in the moment and noticing what we're experiencing while breathing. You know, a lot of times we walk through life, we go through life without even allowing ourselves to fully breathe and be in the present. So I imagine then with Carol, this took some time. Yeah, so I'd say we met weekly for three or four months and then once or twice a month for maybe six to eight months. I don't recall exactly, but it did take some time. So I always believe that if you're going through some type of treatment, you want the very best outcomes possible. What factors may help improve treatment outcome? I think that willingness to to gently venture outside of one's comfort zone is important. And certainly for anybody considering bariatric surgery or who's had bariatric surgery, you know, there's a lot of courage already there because that by definition is venturing outside of, of a comfort zone. A strong therapeutic alliance and trust with the therapist, a sense that the therapist understands um, practicing assignments in between sessions, peer family supports, finding and practicing activities that, that do bring a sense of embodiment, joy, pleasure. In general, I think of it as developing more of an inside out than outside in way of being in the world and developing and strengthening those new pathways that we talked about earlier. You know, we've been talking really about this focus on women, but it comes to mind, are, are men and women equally susceptible? So men and women are equally susceptible, but the reality is there, there's more socio-cultural pressure on women than on men to, certain, to be a certain weight range. So PF tends to be, fat and fat, tends to be a little more common among women because pursuing weight loss is more common among women. Boy, Dr. Daniels, I know this issue is touching hearts and minds right now. And I appreciate that you have done a deep dive into phantom fat and you've helped us get a better understanding of what it is, that it is real and how to deal with it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Understanding that phantom fat can be part of your weight loss is so important and even more so deciding you're going to do something about it so you can keep moving on. And here on the Beyond Bariatric Surgery podcast, we're all about your success and we want you to keep moving on. So we want to give you as many tools for your toolbox as we can. Don't forget, check out our self-development courses regularly that we hold. They're on the website, beyondbariatricsurgery.com. See what's available right now. And don't forget, join the community on Facebook, facebook.com slash Beyond Bariatric Surgery. We'll be watching for your post. Beyond Bariatric Surgery is produced and owned by Practicalories, LLC. All rights reserved. Remember, the content provided on this podcast is for information purposes only and doesn't create a patient-provider relationship. It's intended to provide reference material and is not designed to provide medical advice. 
Please consult your health care provider regarding any medical issues you have relating to symptoms, conditions, diseases, diagnosis, treatments, and side effects. Podcast guests express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions, which do not necessarily reflect or agree with the hosts, Great Ideas in Nutrition, or Practicalities, LLC.